0: Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhart. Hello, and thank you for downloading and listening to this episode of The Next Track. This is episode number 19, and it's brought to you by Doug's Apple Scripts for iTunes. Make sure your iTunes management tools are updated for the latest versions of iTunes and macOS Sierra by visiting dougscripps.com. Hey, Doug. Yeah. I just got a new live Grateful Dead recording. Well, isn't that special? (laughs) Well, it is. It is. Doesn't that happen like three or four times a day at your house?
1: No, it happens, well, four times a year, the, the Grateful Dead release this series that they call Dave's Picks. And then every year or so, there's another big box set. And this year, it was, I think, five recordings from July 1978. But the new one I got was January 23rd, 1970. And it's a critical period because it's the Grateful Dead between that sort of heavy R&B psychedelic 1969 sound and the new 1970 sound where they were going into folk music. So it's, it's two discs of January 23rd. And the third disc is the following day, the 24th. And the last song on the 23rd is Pigpen singing Turn On Your Love Light for 38 minutes. It's just one of those epic songs.
0: Yeah, even I know that that's legendary.
1: It is. It's great. And, and I just love the vibrancy and the spontaneity of live Grateful Dead
0: recordings. Yeah, you know, in general, I, I like live albums anyway. Um, you know, it gives you a chance to hear a band and their chops without, uh, without all the studio crutches. And let's face it, ideally music is best when you hear it live. Recordings of any sort are, are second best by a mile, but a live recording is a great document. And and let's not forget, most bands began their careers playing live all the time. They didn't suddenly become recording artists out of nowhere. You know, some of my favorite live albums are 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 by bands that I would never be able to see, like The Who live at Leeds or Humble Pie performance rock the Fillmore. Rolling Stones get your yayas out. Little Feat's waiting for Columbus. Um, you know, it those are great albums. I love throwing them on, turning the lights off and, and, and just enjoying them.
1: Live albums are really interesting as you say because, you know, it it's a different sound. It's not as finished as the studio sound even though some live albums have a lot of overdubs.
0: Well, you know, that's one of the things that Frank Zappa would do. He'd record uh, the shows that they performed. He'd take the tapes back to the studio and then do tons of overdubs, either by manipulating guitar solos, taking solos from one version of the song and putting them in another, adding lots of vocals, adding lots of other instrumentation. Then there's a sort of um, notorious manufacturer of a live album. Uh, there's a, a new ZZ Top live album, which, a- as far as I'm concerned, could have been recorded in the studio and just had a lot of compression and 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 crowd noise thrown in the background because it just sounds awful. It doesn't sound spontaneous or live at all. The, the really good live albums, in my opinion, you know, have guys in the band talking in between songs and tuning up and, and audience participation and mistakes and... and hubbub and bottles breaking. and
1: Yeah, we were ta- so we were talking about this before the show. We were talking about Hot Tuna's first album. For those who don't know Hot Tuna, it started out as Yorma Kalkinen and Jack Cassidy, guitarist and bass player for the Jefferson Airplane. And they were really into playing old blues songs. And in fact, if you look at the contents of some early Jefferson Airplane albums, they, each one has a few of these old songs that, that Jack and Yormo like to do. So this first album was a live album. It was recorded in a bar someplace. And during Uncle Sam Blues, there's a point where you hear a bottle fall on the floor. And I used to hear the story back in the day that people that owned bars asked Yorma not to sing that song because the people who knew that album, they would drop a bottle on the floor at exactly the same spot in the music.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you definitely know there's an audience so that lends credibility and authenticity to the performance. It's almost like uh those bootlegs. Where you hear the guy going, hey, I know what song they're going to do next. You know, you hear the guys who are actually recording the show just chit-chatting under the microphone.
1: Yeah, that's not the same, though, because a good live recording sounds good. So the Grateful Dead have released literally hundreds of official live releases. And for the most part, these are their own two-track soundboard tapes because they used to record all their concerts so they could go back and listen to them afterwards. And over the years, some of them got lost and rediscovered. And in fact, this particular one that just came out is a recent rediscovery found by a team of archaeologists um, in someone's basement. So you, you, th- these are actually pretty rustic tapes, pretty rough tapes that are fixed up in the mastering and the mixing and all that, but they're not designed to have any specific sound of the audience. Compare that with what was probably one of the groundbreaking albums of the '70s. Frampton Comes Alive that was recorded on sixteen or twenty four tracks now that that was a really interesting one because I had not heard of Peter Frampton before that album came out really I, I didn't know humble pie no oh. uh, I, it's not, it had not crossed my radar. But that album came out and got all this radio play in particularly for Do You Feel Like I Do, which, you know, at 14 minutes, not a lot of stations were playing it. But the FM radio stations like WNEW in New York were playing it. And that was a breakthrough in a couple of ways. I'm not 100% certain, but I think it's the first really big live album that had a lot of audience noise on it. Other well, than that, you. Could
0: pro- I was going to say Woodstock, but that was a soundtrack, so I don't know if you want to consider that like a live album because that was just the soundtrack to a movie. But yeah, not the same. So not the same thing at all, really.
1: No, and and if you listen to the Frampton album now, you can hear the audience throughout, and it's what you would call a matrix recording. So in live recordings, in bootleg live recordings, you have soundboards and you have audience recordings, but there are people who mix the two together to get the audience noise on the soundboard, and they call that a matrix, and. It gave a lot of energy to that Frampton album. It was really interesting. I saw Peter Frampton play it, I think it was at Queen's College, shortly after the album came out. Now, it's really interesting because Wikipedia says that this was released at a special reduced price of $7.98, which was only a dollar more than single-disc albums at the time. And when I saw Peter Frampton, this was Queen's College, whereas a couple of months later, he was playing in big arenas. Basically, what happened, I think, is he booked this part of the tour before the album was released and before it got big. I actually interviewed Peter Frampton in 2004 when I was writing my first iPod book. And he said, yeah, I actually remember that. (laughs) Whether he really remembers it or not, I don't know. But I I believe that the gymnasium in Queens College maybe held a thousand people.
0: And so that was sort of like a a rehearsal sort of part of the tour before the, the actual recordings were made? You well, mean? no,
1: I think what happened is they booked the tour in smaller venues before the album really took off oh, I and before there was a demand to get tickets in larger venues. Yeah. So over the years, th- there's always been a debate. Do you want the live album? Do you want the studio album? Obviously, there's a big difference. And we'll talk about rock for a couple minutes, and then we'll discuss in other genres. A lot of people don't like the live sound. They don't like the sloppiness. If it's a band that doesn't jam at all, If the sounds sound exactly the same from concert to concert, then it's really not that worth it. I I would almost say that like a Bruce Springsteen concert is just a Bruce Springsteen concert, though there is a different energy in his live concerts than there is in his studio recordings.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, indubitably. Um, I I remember what what was that big five CD disc that came out maybe 20 years ago was... Several recordings, and it was immensely popular. And I remember, and I'm not a big Bruce Springsteen fan, but I thought that album was fabulous because it had all the good stuff. It had great musicianship, it had the audience. I mean, because the audience at a Bruce Springsteen concert, just like at a Grateful Dead show, they're really part of what's going on. Um, But you're right, Um, there are a lot of live albums that were just. Essentially, the musicians doing the same thing they did in the studio in front of an audience, which to me was always a letdown because that didn't sound any better or different. I I wanted to hear how they interpreted their own music on the road once they were there. You know, it's funny. We were just Netflix just released a a documentary by Ron Howard called uh, Eight Days a Week. It's a documentary on the Beatles and uh, and their touring years from 62 to 67. And the it's. It's a, pretty good, it's a pretty good documentary. There's nothing new to learn from it, but one of the things you're reminded of is that the audience was really a big part of their performances, if not 50% of the noise was from them. I mean, they got to the point where they couldn't even hear what they were playing themselves on the stage. Of course, there was no sound reinforcement then. There weren't any... Nobody had done arena tours before. This was the first band to actually play in 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 sports stadiums like Shea Stadium and Candlestick well, Park. Well, Shea
1: Stadium, something that big and, and that open. Yeah. I know that when you listen to the recordings from Shea Stadium, I, I, I'm not aware that there are actual soundboard recordings of the Beatles at Shea Stadium. Maybe there are, but the sound is horrendous. Yeah, it's awful. It, you just hear all these people screaming throughout, and I, and I can't imagine that sitting... In the audience, you would have heard the music at all. You might you might hear the thump of the, the bass
0: and and the drums and, and that, but hearing anything else would be hard. Well, you know, what they did was they used the in-house PA system, you know, typically used by a PA announcer to announce what players were on the field and what just happened on the field. I mean, it must have sounded awful when they they pumped, you know, Paul McCartney singing through it. It just must have sounded terrible. But, of course, you didn't go to the show to hear it. You went to go for the the experience i mean the beatles yeah
1: it it was to be able to say that you were there and you saw the beatles yeah. or you know whichever band
0: it was let's take a short break here and we'll get back to our discussion in just a minute As you probably know, I am the Doug part of Doug's Apple Scripts for iTunes, and I wanted to let you know that I've been busy during the summer updating many of the Apple scripting tools for iTunes at dougscripts.com to make them ready for the latest version of iTunes and the latest macOS Sierra. Now, if you haven't visited in a while and you've got some older versions of scripting tools or applications at your house... I encourage you to have a look through your scripts folder and then check out the latest versions of those tools at dougscripts.com. Now, whether you're editing track tag data, managing playlists, cleaning up your entire library, you'll be good to go when you update to iTunes 12.5 and macOS Sierra. I think you'll be happily surprised with how much work you can do and time you'll save when it comes to managing your iTunes media library. The site's easy to use, the tools are easy to find, and downloads employ the latest Apple-recommended security. But best of all, if you're a particular iTunes user, I'm sure you'll find any number of tools to make managing your music less of a chore so that you can spend more time enjoying your media. Doug's Apple Scripts for iTunes at dougscripts.com.
1: I've always found that live recordings to me are more interesting because they capture a moment. One of my favorite recordings of the seventies, and here we're gonna show our age talking about these rock recordings, um, is Yes Songs, mm-hmm. which in spite of the title, it's not the soundtrack of the movie. There are songs on the album that aren't in the movie. The movie's much shorter than the album, which was three LPs, and the movie's very short, it's like seventy-five, eighty minutes at most. It was interesting to hear the band, even though their music wasn't that different from the studio, it was interesting to hear them in, in that sort of environment. And a lot of the live albums back then were two or even three or even four LPs. Chicago at Carnegie Hall was four discs.
0: That's right. That was a big deal, too, because no rock band put out a, a four-disc set before. I mean, and especially a live album yeah. it was just unheard of.
1: The Grateful Dead's Europe 72 was three discs. So this was how they financed the tour. They took a 16 track Ampex recorder and and recorded all their shows. Unfortunately, they did a lot of overdubs. And so it, it lost that, you know, spontaneity and, and it lost the rough edges. And of course, we, you know, some years ago, they released the full Europe 72 recordings, which are the holy grail of Grateful Dead recordings. And we can now hear how they sounded originally. Take a band like the Allman Brothers. I'm pretty sure that they've been living for 45 years off one single live album. Yeah, the Almond Brothers at Fillmore.
0: Yeah, that's a great record too. It really, really is. And that's another one where you really hear the musicianship, and you really get a sense of of the audience, uh, really enjoying it and being part of it. It's not. It, w- it wasn't gimmicky. It wasn't a gimmicky release. Um, no,
1: but it kind of bored me after a few years because, I don't know, it doesn't have the. In my opinion, it doesn't have the, the variety. It's not sing along songs. It's not. Sometimes the jams are way too long, like the mountain jam, the 30 minute mountain jam that's on the E to Peach album, which is from that same set of concerts. It's just a 30 minute jam. Whereas I don't mind a 30 minute turn on your love light with pig pin rapping
0: because. That's spontaneous. You know, another one of my favorite live albums is uh, *Made in Japan* by Deep Purple, and I was always disappointed that one of the sides has a ten-minute drum solo by Ian Pace. And you know, whenever I went to a show when I was a kid, you know, the drummer he always got a drum solo, and it's... he did. And you got a bathroom break out of it. <laughs> well, it's fine in concert, but on the recording, I wasn't so happy about it.
1: Well, hey, um, the song remains the same. Led Zeppelin has a real—is it eighteen-minute version of *Moby Dick*?
0: Well, it's long.
1: It's really long, yeah. and. It's, when you've got two LPs, that's just too much self-absorbed drum soloing. When it's downloads or when it's, you know, three disc Grateful Dead recordings, it's okay. But still, I generally skip the drum solo, like most people, of course. Or I go to the bathroom, even if I'm listening at home. In addition to pure live recordings, you get a sort of a hybrid. Again, before the show, we were talking about something else. We were talking about some early Dylan albums. And what Dylan did back then was he recorded live in a studio. So when you hear him do Like a Rolling Stone on Highway 61 Revisited, you're not hearing something that is a master take with a bunch of overdubs. You're hearing one, two, three, and then the band goes into it. So for Like a Rolling Stone, and and we know this because last year Dylan released what's called the Bootleg Series Volume 12, The Cutting Edge, 1965 to 66. It's 18 CDs with every single note that he recorded in that two-year period, so it covers three albums. There were a total of 15 takes for Like a Rolling Stone. A lot of them were just false starts, and there were rehearsals and all that, and there were really four three or four full takes i'm just looking at the track list here there are one two three three full takes
0: and also weren't they evolving the the actual arranging of the song because i remember the the syncopation of the original version was not what it ended up to be it was a completely different sort of uh sort of rhythm to it and i i don't know it off the top of my head not that i'm going to sing it but uh it seems like you know you can hear the which is great about this, the whole evolution of the composition of the song. He came in with probably something on paper and said to the guys, This is what I want it to sound like. And they just evolved. I'm from pretty that. sure
1: with this one, he basically gave them a chord structure that he had just finished writing the lyrics. Mm-hmm. I know that was the case with some of the songs. Maybe I'm wrong about this one. Dylan recorded a lot like that up until around 66 after Blonde on Blonde. You know, he took some time off and then he went into studios with studio musicians. And he would often try and get that kind of recording, but sometimes it would be overdubs. His last two albums of sort of great American songbook songs are all recorded like that. He's been doing this with his the band that he tours with, with whom he does 100 shows a year. And they're really tight. And they'll just go into the studio and they'll have rehearsed these things. So he did these in one or two takes with this band that was really, really tight and That was it. They didn't spend a week or two in the studio. They did this in a couple of days.
0: Well, that's like in the early days of pop music. The Beatles famously recorded their first album, Please Please Me, in what? In, I think, about a day, or if not less. They didn't spend any time at all.
1: Right. As you just said before about this documentary, they were doing, what, a concert every night almost for a while, weren't they?
0: Right. And for all intents and purposes, they were just recording live in the studio.
1: Now, the live-in-studio dichotomy doesn't only touch rock. It touches jazz. It touches classical music. Listen to Miles Davis, uh, his live recordings compared to the studio. What I find interesting about jazz is it's almost always a live recording, no matter what.
0: Well, it better be.
1: What I mean is it's spontaneous, that the musicians are jamming, that there may be overdubs in, say, a Pat Metheny album or you know something that's heavily produced. But you look at Miles Davis kind of blue, the way it was recorded. He just gave the musicians some charts. Nothing more than chord changes, said... I I was going to do the Miles Davis voice there, but I don't think I should, said, you know, we just want to play this kind of modal music. And in, I think, two or three sessions, they recorded Kind of Blue. And, and that was a live recording just in a studio. But I expect so you do jazz that.
0: musicians to be improvising. So I don't expect there to be too much written down. I mean, if you're going to start with a theme and start with a melody, that's fine. And if you need charts for that, fine. But I expect that soloists are going to be improvising and not play the same thing two times in a row. That's just what I expect.
1: So classical music is interesting because we tend to think of classical music as something sort of written in stone that there's no difference between the live and, and the studio versions, that an orchestra or a single performer will go into the studio and play the music. And it'd be more or less the same as what they're doing when they come on stage. About a year and a half ago, I went to a classical recording session in a, a very old church. It was a choir recording. And what was really interesting was to see exactly how this is done. So the choir goes through and sings the whole song. And this was these were short songs. There are maybe 10 on the CD that they were recording. So they're a few minutes each. So they go through and they record the whole song. And then the conductor goes back to the control room, and he chats with the producer for a while. And so the producer's in there, and he's got a score, and he's been making notes all along of the bits that need to be tweaked. So the conductor comes back out, and he's got his headphones on, so he can hear what the producer's saying. And the producer says, okay, let's say it's measure 50, right? So what they'll do is they'll start at measure 48, and they'll go to measure 53, so they've got a a, a smooth bit, because the splice is going to not be just a straight splice, and... Maybe one of the voices was a little too loud, a little too soft, and the producer wants them to get that down. And maybe they'll do it three or four times to get it right. But they do that. And they'll do this for an hour for each song, doing overdub after overdub. And the producer says, great, that's a take. Let's go on to the next one. So it's very rare that a classical recording is truly live, that there is always some sort of manipulation that takes place. So so this is studio recordings. Now, you do get live recordings also of classical performers, orchestras, operas, things like that. And you're not going to have any or many overdubs in those recordings because it's just not practicable. However, what you will have is you may have... So they'll have done a rehearsal the day before or the afternoon of the evening's performance, and you may have some spots where something just doesn't sound right, and they'll just pick up a bit from the rehearsal and splice it into the final performance that you hear.
0: So they record the rehearsals as well.
1: Yeah. And a good example of this is when John Elliott Gardner did what he called the Bach Cantata Pilgrimage in the year 2000. He performed all of box cantatas, roughly about three per concert, and each concert in a different church and He went all around the world to do this, so they would record the rehearsal in the afternoon and the performance in the evening and There were some where the performance just wasn't right, and they'd use the rehearsal for what they released, and they released all of these recordings um as individual discs and later as a box set
0: and there was there was no audience for the rehearsal
1: no the, well, you might have a small audience for the rehearsal, you, yeah, you might have friends and family and people that work are involved in it, but you wouldn't have a full house. But I'm guessing that in a church, it makes less of a difference because of the type of sound that you have. Whereas in an actual concert hall, you're going to notice if there are people, the, the reverb's going to be a little bit different if there's no one than if there are people.
0: Well, there's no baffling from the people. People absorb the sound. And the...
1: Well, but on the other hand, the seats absorb the sound as well. So maybe it does sound the same. We'll have to get a guest on one day to talk about recording classical music, who can tell us about this. So not all musicians like performance, and Glenn Gould is the perfect example, notably eccentric, yet, in my opinion, one of the greatest pianists of the 20th century. He stopped performing on April 10, 1964. That was his last performance. And he just didn't like the stress of the performance, but he didn't like the atmosphere of classical concerts. He didn't like the noise, the people being uncomfortable and coughing, and and the rituals and all that. And and so I, I actually I feel the same way Glenn Gould does. I don't like classical concerts. You go in and you've got all these people who are like, hmm, a great musician.
0: You've also mentioned about the Bravo guy.
1: Well, I'll get to him. I'll get to him. And you've got this sort of adoration. And it's not the same adoration of the Beatles where everyone's screaming. It's this silent adoration that's really, it's, a, it's an imposition that everything has to be silent. And then you've got people coughing in the silence. And of course, that annoys a lot of people. You've got a couple of people following on a score and turning pages noisily someplace. And then you've always got the Bravo guy at the end of the concert or a really good piece who yells out Bravo at the top of his lungs before the sound has decayed to silence.
0: It sounds like the guy who goes first in comments. It's like, he's got to be there first, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: And, and he's always very loud and he stands up and he keeps yelling, bravo, bravo. Or if they're really elite, they yell bravi. Oh,
0: fancy. Well, you know, even in spite of the Bravo guy and the 18 and a half minute drum solos and the bottles breaking in the audience, I'm just a sucker for live albums. And in fact, a, a great thing that's happening now is a lot of the great live albums are being reissued. I mentioned Live at Leeds. You can now get a super mega deluxe version of Live at Leeds that has the full concert and the full concert they did in Hull, I guess, a few days before. And I've mentioned Rockin' the Fillmore by Humble Pie. You can now get a recording with all four shows that they recorded at the Fillmore. So it's just a lot of fun to collect these. And I'm just a sucker for them. I'll buy them every time.
1: Yeah, well, for some albums, like you said, live at Leeds and things, you will buy them again. And in many cases, it's economics that they could only do one or two LPs back then. And now they've got the possibility, You know, CDs cost nothing to press, So, and people, particularly music that old, people our age, are more interested in buying box sets than buying a single CD. Yep, that's me. So, yeah, we're living in a great age of live recording because on top of all the big bands we're talking about, smaller bands record their stuff live and sell downloads. Nugs.net, link in the show notes, they do a lot of jam bands. Fish sells their live recordings, The Grateful Dead's successor that they're calling dead and company sells their live recordings so if you're a music fan you can get the recording of the show you went to and you know i've gone back and i've gotten bootlegs of some of the concerts i went to in the 70s and they're hard to track down and i would have loved to have been able to get them back then in better quality than than what i've got now
0: yeah all right that'll do it bravo As is our weekly custom, we're going to tell you our next tracks before we do. I want to remind you that you should make sure your iTunes management tools are updated for the latest versions of iTunes and macOS Sierra by visiting my site, Doug's Apple Scripts for iTunes, at dougscripts.com. Kirk, what's your next track?
1: So to stick with the theme of this week's show, my next track is going to be a, well, a set of live recordings. It's not a single concert. The Austrian pianist Alfred Brendel retired from performances a couple of years ago, and In the last few years, he released a number of what he called artist's choice recordings. So he would go back through his old recordings and he would say, well, these are the Schubert recordings I like best. And these were the Liszt recordings I like best. And one of these is a two CD set, which is live and radio performances 1968 to 2001. And in the notes, he explains why he chose each of the things in this set. And one's Beethoven's Piano Sonata Number 28. There's some Busoni, some Mendelssohn and Chopin that's on one disc. And the other disc is the Diabelli Variations. And he said that he thought this was his best recording of the Diabelli Variations that had been recorded for the radio. It's a wonderful recording. The, The only thing I don't like about live classical recordings is the applause at the end because you want the sound to decay and you don't want the applause and depending on how the recording is done, whether it's been edited to get the applause out, whether they can get the applause out, if the Bravo guy yells before the sound is decayed, they can't. But this is a really, really wonderful recording of the Diabelli Variations, which, while it doesn't seem to be an extremely popular work as piano works go, it's certainly one of my favorites. So this is called Alfred Brendel, Live and Radio Performances, 1968 to 2001. What's your next track today, Doug?
0: My next track is also a live album of sorts. It is Elton John's 111770 or as it's known in the UK 171170. It was a radio broadcast recorded on November 17th, 1970, before Elton had reached his superstar status. This is just I think before Madman Across the Water came out. Uh, it features Nigel Olsen on drums and Dee Murray on bass and Elton. And believe it or not, they sound like the Ben Folds Five. Uh, It's just a great live recording. Small studio audience, about 100 people, were on hand. Like I said, it was broadcast live, so it was bootlegged. And the bootleg proved so popular that his record company, MCA, decided to release a six-song LP of the uh, performance. It really is a a, a great performance by three guys who are really cooking. The LP is great. It has a wonderful, warm, intimate sound. Very exciting to hear these three guys playing. But... When it came time to release the CD version, Gus Dudgeon, the producer, decided that Elton John is too big for this intimate sound, and he added reverb and all kinds of other processing to the recording, and the CD version that's available is just awful. It just sounds so artificial. And I eventually tracked down a used copy of the original LP, so I'm happy. But even so, for the performances alone, it's really worth listening to. It's, it's, it's really a great sound for Elton John. In fact, he himself has said that this is one of his best performances. It's definitely worth giving it a listen to despite the artificialness of the production on the current releases. It is Elton John 111770, and that's my next track. This has been the next track a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.